0: Well, this Sunday we reach the final words of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. He has been writing to believers in Thessalonica whose faith is under fire, and it's been that way from the start. Persecution so severe that the missionaries were driven out, but despite all the hostility, these believers are thriving. And the scriptural record of God's amazing work in their lives to make that possible serves as encouragement to us as well. The world is still hostile to God and His people, but His people are still thriving because God is still God, and we belong to Him. So in verses 23 to 28, Paul closes out the letter with these words, Be with you. Will you note in our text this morning that the passage begins and ends with benediction, a pronouncement of blessing? In verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Between these two benedictions, these bookends, are three commands. Blessed with peace. And blessed with grace from God through Christ, we who are members of the family of God, here called brothers, have these priorities to fulfill. Brothers, pray for us, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, and have this letter read to all the brothers. So, I've entitled our study this morning, The Priorities of the Blessed. The blessing that God has brought on us, this benediction that He has conferred upon us, is the ground from which our duties rise. And because of Him, we have these priorities as the body of Christ. So first, let's consider the blessing of sanctifying peace. We'll read verses 23 and 24 again. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul calls God the God of peace because God is the one who reconciles sinners to himself. He makes peace with them. He makes that possible and restores all things to the very good, the shalom that he created the universe to be. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of bringing things together. It's sin that separates. It's rebellion that drives us apart. And as God restores us to fellowship with God, that restoration breaks the power of our sin and makes holiness possible. The sanctifying power of closeness to God. This is something for us really to to understand, and that is that it's our connection to God, our belonging to God, that makes our holiness possible. It is not ramping up our levels of discipline. There, there's discipline in the Christian life, to be sure, but the power for being holy comes from belonging to God. It it produces an effect in our lives, but we don't achieve it by making ourselves holy. We achieve it by our connection to the God of peace. Will you note that Paul prays, he pronounces this benediction, that the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And the word that he uses there is a a combination of two words. The first word um, means to be whole or entire. And the second word that it's combined with has the idea of an end or a goal. So, so what he's saying here is that this complete sanctification is fully reaching God's intended goal for us. So, so even the language that he uses is not just the idea of completeness, but it's also the idea that this is a completeness that was God's goal at the beginning. And therefore God is working this in us. He breaks that out with a synonym. He says that your whole spirit, soul, and body, so completely and whole, and another word that has a similar concept, and this is complete in every part of you, all the parts of you sanctified, working together, all that you are spiritually, um, emotionally, the level of your, your intellect and will and, and personality, and also physically, so uh, we're, we're not defined by our sin. We're defined by our belonging to God through Christ. And that that belonging to God produces a holiness that's not merely outward conformity without inward reality. nor Nor is it purely intellectual or philosophical without having action attached to it. Our whole spirit, and if you want to divide these up, there's... You know, there's some free variation here, but the Spirit should be uh, what controls the rest of us, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then our soul is our self, our personality, our emotion, will, intellect. And then obviously our body, um, physically. God is at work in every part of us. Think about that. Every part of us. Not, Not just how you're thinking, not just what you're feeling, but but even what you're doing. Every part of you God has claimed as his own. You belong completely to God. By the way, you know that your body belongs to God because in the resurrection, your body is going to come out of the grave. God is saving his people completely, and he is at work in your life completely. We are, you know, as human beings, however many parts you want to divide us into, we are one. There, we're an integer. We are, we are whole. And every part of us is combined in this identity of belonging to God. Our inheritance for which God has planned and purposed, the goal toward which we are living, our inheritance includes sinless immortality. Sinless immortality. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the down payment, he's the seal that marks us as God's, he's the guarantee that that full measure of holiness will come. If I'm fully holy, then death has no more claim on me. And this is is our destiny. Else our striving against sin would be powerless and hopeless, but for the power of God working through the Holy Spirit. I was reading just this morning in Psalm 37. Of course, it starts with not fretting about evildoers, and then moves on to committing your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as a noonday. The context is in the face of enemies, but we know that our greatest enemy is not people on the outside, it's ourselves. It's that struggle, that battle against indwelling sin, and, and we're, we're often... We could be in despair, we're disappointed at how we respond to certain circumstances and certain temptations, but, but if we belong to the Lord, if we're committed to Him, if we're trusting in Him, He's going to work in us in a way that brings forth our righteousness as light. It is who we are, we're light in the Lord, we're no longer darkness. He goes on to say, he's praying that God, may your whole spirit and body Soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God protects His people. He guards them. He is watching over us to see to it that we stand blameless before Him. It's one thing to be blameless before people because they don't know everything that's going on. But how can you stand blameless before God who sees your soul and knows your spirit, not just what you've done with your body, okay? We can hide things from other people. We can hide nothing from God. It, it takes a miracle of divine power for me to actually be blameless before God. And that is what he is doing. We see this same kind of, of concept in Christ's prayer for his disciples in John 17. He says to the Lord, to his Father, God the Father, I am no longer in the world. But they, speaking of his disciples, are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father... Keep them, same language, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, referring to Judas Iscariot. He goes on to say in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, you guard them, you protect them from the evil one. This is God's sanctifying work, protecting you, changing you, transforming you, so that at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand blameless. His royal visit is sure. All of human history is rushing toward that day. And God makes believers ready and eager for his return. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it it's god's own faithful character and his sovereign ability that make our complete sanctification not merely a wishful dream but a certain destiny years ago there's a song we are not alone our god is with us, We're not on this journey alone. This is not all about how disciplined you can be and how hard you can try. This is about the God who has hold of you with an eternal purpose that he will not fail to achieve. He has called us to himself and he will complete what he has begun. It's really important. As we deal, navigate all the difficulties of life and the the setbacks, it's really important for us to know that that God has us on a trajectory that he will not fail to reach. It's kind of like watching a a championship football game where you already know the outcome. It It doesn't matter so much the setbacks and the fumbles and the turnovers if you know how it ends. Well, we know how it ends. Because God guarantees that victory. So, how could the settled confidence that you belong to the God of peace, this is a God that creates peace between Him as the all holy God and sinners who are anything but holy, the God of peace, and that He is committed to sanctifying you completely, how can that shape your thinking? and your choices, and your activity each day. We, we kind of get lost in the weeds. Think about where you're going. Think about what God is doing, and then, let, then line up how you're thinking and what you're doing, what you're saying, with that God-defined goal. What are ways you can live in keeping with God the Father's purpose for you God the Son's intercession for you and God the Spirit's working you. Think about this. All three persons of the Trinity are at work to see that this happens. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all working for this common goal. This is the blessing that belongs to God's people, and Paul has put words to it in this letter. And then in light of that blessing, the priority of intercessory prayer. Brothers, pray for us. This is the first of three priorities that Paul is going to emphasize here for the brothers. As you look down through, you see he keeps using the term brothers. Brothers, brothers, brothers. Those who've been made family By the God of peace, the fellowship that we enjoy, the peace we enjoy with God, unfailingly creates fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And these three priorities reflect and strengthen that bond of family love. Paul has already expressed in his letter more than once that he and his fellow missionaries faithfully pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, you'd expect that. Wouldn't you like to have an apostle praying for you? Yeah, me too. Sign me up. Okay? He's written half, he's going to write half the New Testament. Yeah, I want that guy praying for me. And here, however, he asked them to pray for him and for Timothy and for Silas. They're still relatively new believers, young believers. And yet he values and even commands that they pray for him. This is the way he talks to to the churches that he writes. He's an apostle. He writes scriptures. He's a missionary. He's pointed countless numbers of people to Christ. But he needs their prayers and he highly values them. I mean, this this is an apostle that does miracles. And he asks for their prayers. That teaches us that no believer... However used by God to benefit others is beyond the need, the urgent need of prayer. Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers. He's writing from the notoriously wicked city of Corinth. It's immoral, proud, a divisive city that has infected, will infect the church itself. He's encountered stiff opposition to the gospel, uh, enough to be unnerving for even him. He's been kicked out of the synagogue, but God opened a house for him next door to the synagogue, and then it it turned out that the leader of the synagogue trusts in Jesus. It's, It's the ultimate reversal. Christ himself came to him in the visions of the night to encourage Paul to keep on preaching, Because he, Christ, had many people in this city that had yet to be converted and to trust. So it makes sense when you look at what's happening there in Corinth. It makes sense that Paul understands he needs supernatural power and ability to be able to make it through and and be faithful to what God has called him to do. In the second letter to the church in Thessalonica, it was also written from Corinth not long after the first letter... And not long after we finish this letter, we will go into the second one next Sunday. Paul asked them to pray specifically that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. So he's praying both positively and negatively. He's praying for the positive advance of the gospel. But he's praying with the full recognition that there's an enemy on the field pushing back and trying to keep it from happening. And that's the way it always is. We pray for one another. We pray for positive advance. We pray for the gospel to spread. We pray for the gospel to be evident in our lives. And we pray that God will protect us from the evil one. We pray that God will protect us from the enemies of the gospel that would push back. So who are the brothers and sisters in Christ for whom you pray regularly? This is a priority. This, This is important as Paul's finishing out this is one of the first things the first thing that he tells us to be doing who do you pray for regularly and who are the brothers and sisters who faithfully pray for you notice that Paul's asking them to pray for him so who are you asking to pray for you you need people praying for you and what are some practical ways you can further this kind of mutual praying for one another and like, just, just, you need to think about this more, but think about, just for a moment here, just, you know, stop the train and just think for just a moment, who is praying for you? Who are you praying for? And how can you keep that, uh, a perpetual prayer meeting going on where you're regularly praying for one another? We need this. This is a priority. We have the blessing of God because of God's care for us. He's looking out for us. Well, we ought to be talking to him about that. God said, I'm going to do this for you. So let's talk to him about that for one another. And let's ask others to pray for us as well. It's it's a great encouragement to know how people pray for us. And we want to give that encouragement to them as well. The second priority that he gives is the priority of welcoming affection. In verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Well, this word greet shows up often in his epistles. It is a common word even in the secular feudal. It means to, to embrace or to welcome. It's an expression of family unity and love. And I think I always use this illustration, so I know I'm repeating myself. I'm, I'm not senile yet, but I'm repeating myself so you remember what this looks like, this this is what it looks like when you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you see family that you haven't seen maybe a year or two. This is what it looks like when they welcome you after a long journey. They welcome you into the house, and there's embracing, and there's oh, you, you know, if you if you you know are a kid, how much you've grown, and all that kind of talk, you know, and come on in, and let's let's have a meal together, okay? That kind of embracing. Family affection for one another is what the greeting refers to. And, and then he says, greet them with a holy kiss. Holy, as distinguished from a romantic kiss. The, in, the, in the Middle East, both then and now, a kiss on the cheek is the customary greeting for family or friends. You know, occasionally we have folk visit from the Mediterranean region. And it's kind of funny to, you know, watch our kids or people respond when they... Instead of shaking a hand, they start kissing on the cheek. That's like, whoa, we're an American now. Uh, so, but this is common in the, in the Mediterranean area. And the custom continues in many places in the world. Um, in our culture, um, perhaps it's more customary to give a warm handshake or even a brief hug. And even that has changed some uh, in my lifetime as to how, how we express ourselves. We used to be a little more, shall I call it, British, you know, like... You know, keep, keep your distance, and we're, we're becoming a little more affectionate in the way that we greet one another. But, but we do greet. We want to communicate that we care about these people, that we love them, that they're family. People in happy families display this regularly. And the point is to show a welcoming affection toward one another, not partiality, not dismissiveness, not self-absorption, not contempt, not aloofness, not ignoring one another or avoiding one another. And what makes it remarkable is that that this welcoming affection is for all the brothers. It's for, for all the brothers and sisters in Christ. Every believer, man, woman, child, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, young, old, there's a welcoming. It's not just birds of a feather, unless you mean all those that belong to Christ. And, and this, this is one of the most striking effects of the gospel in the lives of people. It takes people from all kinds of backgrounds, puts them in one family, and produces a family love for one another that you can't explain apart from Jesus. So whenever we're together in smaller, large groups... The sense of warm family affection among us should be obvious. We each need that kind of welcome. Realize the human heart needs this. This, this is like water to the thirsty soul. This is like food that sustains us. We need a sense of belonging. We, we need the, the community that, that says you are safe here and you are loved here. This is what Christians do. This is a priority. This is not just a cultural thing. This is a cross-cultural thing. This is a, the culture of the kingdom of Christ. And further, those that are outside of Christ and need to see this kind of love displayed for one another. It is, it is the Spirit that Christ creates among His people by His transforming power. It's powerful. It's compelling. It displays The fellowship we now enjoy with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that fellowship then flows out to all the saints. And then it flows out beyond that. It invites others to enter in through trusting in Christ to save them too. This is the community of the saints. It's an affectionate community that cares about one another. And there is power in it. I mean we we watch it uh every lord's day when we gather there's there's a power in seeing people that like to be with each other people that aren't here just to check off the box and give their nod to god um and you know do their religious duty but people that actually love one another because we are brothers and sisters in christ and they show it They show it on their face. They show it in their body language. They show it in the time that they spend with one another. This is not not a small thing. This is a culture that marks the people of God. It's a priority. By the way, I mean, just, just to give some illustration of this, this is why we renovated the auditorium to be the way it is now. Let me talk about how this affected it. We opened up the area instead of herding people through like cattle to come to the main event. We said, no, we want you to spend time together. So we're going to open up that area so that there's space for you to have time. We're going to lower the platform so that it feels like we're more together. We're going to combine some classrooms out here and, and open up a space, because a lot of people are coming from Sunday school to the main service, and, hey, that'll be an area to enjoy coffee together and, and to have some life-on-life life stuff. We're trying to have the facilities facilitate or mirror what's supposed to be going on. Now, the facilities don't make it happen. It was already happening, but the facilities reflect that it's happening, that that was the goal because we want this family affection going on here, and, and people desperately need it. I mean, think, if you think about even the secular world and the way, you know, the, the songs that they sing and all and the, the desires that they express, they're desiring peace. They're desiring, why can't we all get along? We, well, you can't get along because of the sin problem. <laughs> you can't get along because you're not right with God. But when you get right with God, you shouldn't be marked by divisiveness. You shouldn't be marked by pride and and putting people off and dismissiveness. In fact, if you see people like that, you may think they're religious people, and they might be religious people, but they're not godly people. They're not people that are showing the grace of God at work in their life. So how can you better express your family affection for brothers and sisters in Christ that you know? I say that, and I'm not not chiding because so many of you do this so very well. But, But this is something that we want to keep feeding. This is something we want to keep expressing. What attitudes, words, or actions, contrary to this kind of affectionate care, do you need to confess and forsake? You know, we can know that this is the way it's supposed to be, but it can become kind of a kind of a spiritual fiction, because we do so many things that are contrary to it. You know, things like gossip or slander or angry words or or cutting things or divisive behavior. We, We want to work against those things. We want to confess those to the Lord and forsake them so that we have this family affection, greeting one another with a holy kiss. And then the next priority is the priority of scriptural instruction. I've put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So, before the divine judge of all the universe, I'm making you accountable for this. This is, this is what God's going to require of you. Have this letter read, public reading of this letter that Paul has written. Well, for him to say that Means that they're to count this letter as scripture. By the way, this is what we see in the Old Testament and the New. It didn't take hundreds of years for them to say, oh, oh, I think this is maybe scripture because it's old. No, it was script- it's scripture when it's given and it's recognized as such. And, and he is recognizing as such and wants them to treat it as such. The Christians in Thessalonica are to treat this letter as as they would the Old Testament Scriptures, which had been read publicly for centuries whenever the people of God gathered for worship. Paul gives the same charge to the Colossians and tells them to pass on the letter he wrote to them to other local bodies of believers as well. In time, both the people, uh, both the people of God uh, would read portions from the, the Old Testament prophets and from the New Testament apostles each time they gathered for worship. So we're in this transition zone where the New Testament's being written. God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, regularly gathered to listen to the Scriptures read publicly. And whenever you find a healthy church ever since, you'll find the same practice. The Scriptures thus delivered are the chief authoritative means by which God leads His people through the challenges of living in a world hostile to them. Think all the way back to Joshua. And what God said to him, at this point, only the Pentateuch's been written by Moses, who's an older contemporary of Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead, and now it passes to Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. This book of the law, this book of instruction from God, shall not depart from your mouth. That might be surprising to you, except that a leader leads with his mouth. He, he's supposed to rehearse to people what God has said. But you shall meditate on it day and night. So you've got the mouth communicating it. You have the mind meditating on it, chewing on it. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make a way prosperous and then you'll have good success. That principle continues to this day. God's word is to be shared. God's word is to be meditated on. And God's word is to be obeyed. And then, then our path is clear for us to serve God. And this is for all the brothers. All believers needed the apostolic instruction that Paul had written. It was not just for the intellectual elite. It was brothers and sisters of every age group and background, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic group. The the first century churches were a mix because the gospel is for everyone. The majority of first century population could read. It was a very literate society, slavery-free. But you recall that movable type printing didn't happen until Gutenberg. So most people couldn't afford books. Anything they had of reading material in their possession had to be hand copied. We call those hand copies manuscripts. I mean, handwritten. Okay. The value of the New Testament scriptures led to their being copied over and over again wherever they went, and that is why they are by far the best attested ancient documents in all of human history. By far, the most copies, and the oldest copies of ancient documents as compared with any other ancient document, by far. We read today what God has preserved for us because of obedience to commands like what Paul gave here. It's a great gift to us. We can know that when we read the New Testament today, there's no question that we are reading a translation of what the apostles actually wrote because there are so many copies to compare. So what practical steps can you take to make sure you make God's written word a priority in your daily and weekly routine? And, you know, listen, you know, some, I've talked to some that they they struggle with reading. They prefer to listen, well then listen because that's what this church would have been doing initially, is listening. And, and then ask yourself, what tends to undermine your attention to the Word, and how can you counteract it? This, this is a priority. Like all the things on your to-do list, this is one of the top three, according to this passage. Prayer, affection for the brothers, and Scripture. Scripture. Those things have to happen as God's blessing is on you. So we had the blessing of the peace of God, and now we have the blessing of present grace in verse 28, the the other bookend. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We all know grace is such a common word to us, but remember that it means favor from God. It means goodness or beauty, that's given to us. We haven't earned it. It's a gift, a free gift from our Lord. It's from the God-man Savior. The Lord is the Master. Jesus, Yahweh saves. He's the God-man Savior who will save His people from their sins. And Christ, He is the promised, Spirit-anointed King of an everlasting kingdom. His grace be on you, be with you. Grace, this favor from God, is an ever-present blessing from Christ to give us the power to live as his people. We we live in the atmosphere, we breathe the atmosphere of grace, peace and grace, peace with God and grace from God. Christ himself said, I am with you all the days, even to the consummation of of the age. He is with you. You're a believer. You know that you're trusting in Jesus. He is with you. He is present with you all the days. And his favor is on you beyond what you've earned, beyond any good that you've done, even after you became a believer. He is is lavishing goodness and beauty on you beyond what you've earned so that you can thrive in a hostile world. So how can knowing that you have this undeserved and constant loving favor of the Lord Jesus Christ on your life shape the way you navigate each day? I mean, you don't don't need to be despairing. You don't need to be fretting. You don't need to be, um, you know, cynical. His grace is on you. And how could knowing that God's peace and God's grace empowers all genuine Christian living protect you from self-reliant pride or self-reliant despair because that's where it ends. If you're relying on yourself, you are going to eventually despair. You cannot keep it up. You need peace and you need grace. Well, Paul loves these believers, but their ability to survive and thrive in a hostile world comes from God and not man not even an apostle their history makes that obvious because paul was ripped from their side almost immediately and they're still thriving this letter affirms that reality the way they live grows from divine blessings the blessing of sanctifying peace book ended with the blessing of present Grace, And therefore, now they live with these priorities, intercessory prayer, welcoming affection, and scriptural instruction. May we follow these priorities as well if we count ourselves among the blessed ones. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your way of salvation, your way of deliverance. We thank you that you rescue us And that when you rescue us, you are at work in us and continuing a work in us to the day of Jesus Christ. That your will for us is our sanctification, that we be more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, that our belonging to you become more and more evident by the way we we think and, and live. And Lord, we pray that we might display our belonging to God, our identity as a holy people more and more in the way that we live. Lord, I pray that you would help us in the face of any hostility, whether it be uh, outside or whether it be in our own hearts and being tempted to sin or from the devil himself. Lord, may we rest on your almighty power that has made peace with us through the cross of Jesus and has brought us into the family of God. And Lord, may we live with that peace, setting our hearts at ease and giving us hope and destiny. And Lord, may we live knowing that your favor is on us every single day to the consummation of the age. For it's in Christ's name we pray.